From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm the Reverend Dr. Katherine Henderson, and today is going to be an amazing program, and we're so glad you're here with us. As I have talked to people all around the country during this month of August, I've become aware of the consistent drumbeat of anxiety and fear that so many folks are feeling. The sure signs of climate change with wildfires and floods, the rising awareness of the reality of white Christian nationalism and extremism, forces that threaten our democratic aspirations and erode our freedoms, even as the impending midterms portend more conflict and mistrust in our nation. And then there are daily shootings, rising interest rates, and a slowing economy, and the beat goes on. Nonetheless, in the next hour, we're going to challenge the priority our public rhetoric seems to be giving to these very real concerns right now. The theme of today's show offers insight into how we can temper our fear of the future through practice and action. Dread not facing the future with more hope and less fear. And at the same time, we must recognize that some people among us live with constant fear. And we're going to get into all this today. So here with me are three public leaders and friends who've grappled with fear personally and professionally. And they have important things to say about how we might go about facing the future with more hope. Ari Wallach is a futurist and social systems strategist. He's the author of the powerful book, Long Path, Becoming the Great Ancestors Our Future Needs. And his TED Talk on Long Path has been viewed over 2.5 million times and translated into 19 languages. Caitlin Breedlove is the Deputy Executive Director at the Women's March. And since 2003, Caitlin has been organizing, writing, and building movements in red states, working across race, class, culture, gender, sexuality, and faith. Caitlin speaks across movement spaces and writes for Medium. And Wajahat Ali is a tireless writer, speaker, and public thinker, He's a New York Times contributing op-ed writer who regularly appears on cable news and radio to discuss politics, religion, foreign policy, and culture. Waja's provocative memoir is titled, Go Back to Where You Came From, and Other Helpful Recommendations on How to Become American. I'm Ray Kirstein at the intersection of religion, government, and hyperbole. Because they are able to hide their multi-million dollar income by claiming tax status as a church, it's important to keep track of what the hilariously named Family Research Council is spending that money on. This week, the proudly FRC-funded daily newsletter, Washington Stand, led one issue with the headline, Five Ways Joe Biden is Cursing the Soul of America. Now, this is not some frothing far-right radio talk show host ranting in the wee hours of the morning desperate to drum up some ratings. It's the message a tax-exempt, self-proclaimed church is blaring to its many wide-eyed followers. Not one way, not two ways, not three or four, but five ways the President of the United States is cursing the soul of America. 
A new report from the USC Annenberg Inclusion Initiative reveals that Muslims are greatly underrepresented in television programs. While making up 25% of the global population, followers of the fastest-growing religion in the world comprise barely 1% of popular TV program characters in the U.S., U.K., Australia, and New Zealand. Worse, nearly 30% of the few Muslim characters that were presented were perpetrators of violence. And a judge in Texas has pushed perversion of religious freedom further down the slippery slope we've been warning about for so long now. Reed O'Connor ruled this week that employers who oppose homosexuality based on deeply held etc. can't be required to offer ACA-mandated health insurance if it includes anti-HIV medication. Listen to the judge's reasoning. Quote, Being required to provide such insurance coverage violates their sincerely held Christian and non-religious beliefs, rejecting homosexual behavior, intravenous drug use, and sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman. Be afraid. Be very afraid. State of Belief airs every weekend on radio stations nationwide and is available as a podcast on iTunes and other leading podcast platforms. Don't miss a single conversation by subscribing today. This program is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation this week, we really appreciate you. Thank you. And if you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And now to our first guest. Ari Wallach has taught at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs, founded and still leads Longpath Labs. He's a futurist and social system strategist focused on sustainable, thriving humanity and the planet in the coming decades and centuries, and a great person to start this conversation, encouraging all of us to dread not as we face the future with less fear and more hope. So Ari, welcome to State of Belief Radio. Thank you. It's great to be here. You know, when you and I first met over a decade ago, go Long Path was just getting started. It was you were just giving birth to Long Path and now it's becoming a worldwide movement. So I know you could speak for days about Long Path, but just briefly bring our listeners up to date on what Long Path means. So first of all, thank you for having me, uh, and it's great to be here with you. So the, the the book Long Path: Becoming the Great Ancestors, Our Future Needs um, was written to kind of help people think about both the moment that we're in, but more specifically, how to take Long Path, which is really kind of an applied mindset. It's a way of thinking about the world today and our collective role in it, as well as our individual role and our individual agency in the world today. And how we go about with that mindset, creating the futures that we want, as opposed to this idea that the future is just a kind of a noun that is out there that washes over us. So it's very much about the future as a verb that people have and hold within them in terms of what they do day in and day out, as opposed to the future being this thing that will kind of happen and is already predefined and predestined to happen. So... When we were first experiencing our friendship, I remember we used that biblical phrase, reading the signs of the times, yep. uh, to understand what time we were living in. And 
in your book, you talk about the challenging times we're living in as, as you use the word inner tidal. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about this inner tidal time. Yeah, of course. As it relates to the time that we're going through now. So the intertidal as a as a kind of in terms of marine ecosystems, where I'm taking the metaphor from, is that place that many of us who have visited the ocean know really well. It's a place of tide pools. It's a place where sometimes it's covered by water and sometimes it's not. And that's kind of where we are right now. We're in this kind of interregnum or in-between space. And specifically, I'm placing our intertidal within a kind of larger historical arc. And, and in some ways, it's, it's very much through a, a Western lens, but I think it's actually global in many ways. And so the, the argument that I'm making is that this intertidal moment is happening because we are on the tail end of probably the past three to 400 years of a certain kind of mindset that sees the world through the kind of scientific breaking things down that are very complex into their individual parts to better understand them moment. Now, as a scientist, I, I love I love what, you know, the, the Renaissance and the Enlightenment has given us. But what has happened is we kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater because this scientific way of looking at the world overly kind of ra- hyper-rational, if you will, has led to a kind of disenchantment with the kind of spiritual and awe-based nature of reality. And so what ends up happening is, even though we, we are far into this kind of technological moment, we all know that the kind of narratives and the stories about how the world is supposed to work and is going to work, what we, what we call the official future, is breaking mm-hmm. down. And this intertidal moment is where we see those things kind of breaking down and we feel it, but we don't know what is yet going to replace it. So in that in-between, we find ourselves in this intertidal moment. So it's sort of a, a space of, the mystics would say, a space of unknowing. And that can be a very creative, um, you even say it's a ju- juicy and creative space. It's a juicy, Even if yeah. it feels anxiety producing. The, the animals that exist in the intertidal zone are some of the most fascinating ones in nature because they figure out how to kind of evolve and survive and flourish in these types of moments. Now, let's be clear, the intertidal is not a place that we want to be in for a long time because it's very difficult. And there eventually will be a new official future because for Homo sapiens, living without a kind of an official future or a, a narrative or a set of narratives is just is cognitively taxing. So eventually something will come in to replace it. The question is, what is that going to be? And in this moment, it can kind of go, it, it can kind of go either way. And, and, and to go back with what you just said, look, I'm, as you know, um, I'm obviously influenced by a lot of wisdom traditions, mine mine being Judaism. And so I think of the Exodus story and the kind of 40 years of wandering in the desert as kind of an intertidal between what was and what will be. And one of the things I speak about in the book, which hopefully we'll get into, is this idea of telos or ultimate aim. And so Mm -hmm. what I think is as important in terms of recognizing that we're in an intertidal moment is recognizing what tends to pull us out of it and having that ultimate aim or larger purpose is going to be key for us, just like it was for those who were wandering the desert for 40 years. Mm-hmm. I want to pick up on on your personal story um, in terms of being a Jew whose family was deeply affected by the Holocaust and um, as the creator of Long Path. How, how do you understand this moment when there's such an assault against religious freedom and other freedoms, this 
rise of white Christian nationalism, um, increased violence related to that, uh, you know, the erosion of our democratic aspirations. How do you understand that from a long path perspective? Well, so- and, and from your own, you know, situ- life situation as, as a Jew um, in this country. And as the son of someone who survived the Holocaust, right? So yes. it's rare for someone my age, I'm, I'm a young 47-year-old, who who is a first-generation <laughs> Holocaust survivor because my dad had me when he was 50. So usually these are stories that you are told uh, about the Holocaust from your grandparents. That wasn't the case for me. I was told these stories as a five- and seven-year-old by my dad who lived it. Um, and... The reality was when we would talk about what happened in World War II, he he grew up in a small village in Poland and, and ended up fighting with the Jewish resistance for several years. Um, and it was a Nazi hunter after the war. And one of the things that he always said was, and, and it greatly influenced his long path, was he goes, look, the Holocaust in World War II didn't start in the you know early 1940s or 1939, like everyone said. It started in the 1920s. It started with the Treaty of Assange. It started in the past. And there was a whole host of issues around, you know, the Germans and shame and guilt in World War One, And this is definitely not to let anyone off the hook. I will be the last one to do that when it, when it, when it comes to folks who perpetuated the atrocities of World War II and specifically the Holocaust. But what it does is, and the way it influenced Longpath is when I think about how we make these futures that we want, we can't start from today. We have to actually go into the past to recognize mm-hmm. what created the kind of systemic and foundational ontologies, ways of being that led to these horrific things happening. Uh, So when I look at the rise of, you know, white Christian nationalism and all these issues that are happening right now, I don't see them through the lens of, or or even think about them temporally as 2022. I think of some of these going back to the 14-1500s and kind of what happened Mm -hmm. when the church, and I mean that with a capital T and a capital C as a bureaucratic larger institution, lost power and and then and the reverberations of that and i see that through line in the same way that being raised in a home saw the through line of the holocaust and anti-semitism as not just yes in the 1920s and 30s as i said but also in many ways going back centuries um and so the moment that we're in if we want to think about how we deal with these issues that we are facing and those who are wishing to perpetuate harm and violence I'm not advocating that we let them off the hook because they were born into this. What I'm saying is that for us to think about how we're going to combat and move past this moment, we have to recognize where all folks are coming from, what intergenerational stories, trauma, ways of being are being embodied by them right now, if we are going to solve this at a systemic level. At an acute level, there are things that we have to do right now to ensure safety for all. But if we want to get at the underlying issues, what Longpath shows, and and through the work that we've done at Longpath Labs, is we have to meet people where they are, and where they are in many ways is embedded in deep historical uh, ways of being that those of us, and I'll be totally honest, those of us, I'll speak for myself, on on the the left Mm -hmm. of the political spectrum, don't often take into account. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's... It's a very hard leap for many of us to make yeah. uh, in this in this divided country. Um, let's let's bring it down to the practical level because you do in the book you you talk a lot of, about practical things, the things that you can do every day. Um, you use 
and I love this, the trim tab <laughs> example of how a tiny little mechanism uh, on a ship can turn the ship. So uh, bring it down to, you know, the lives of everyday people to your life. I mean, you say that long path uh, is something that you use every day. So help us figure out how we move from short-termism, uh, because we like to think in the short term, uh, to, you know, to reframing towards a, a more of a long path way of being. Sure. So I talked about the title of the book, the, the bottom of the book does an antidote for short-termism. So look, short-termism in and of itself isn't inherently a terrible thing. If Ari and Catherine are walking 15,000 years ago and a very large animal jumps out at, you know, from a tree at us, we need to enact short-term thinking, right? We need to actually take acute action, kind of what I was getting at before. The problem happens when short-termism becomes the all-pervasive way of acting and being in the world, which I argue in the book comes from two things. One, obviously, kind of technology and capitalism and the way we kind of view ourselves in an overly quantified world, which is kind of part of, again, this kind of enlightenment, rational way of thinking, kind of this, this big data approach to living, if you will. The other is when we're in this kind of intertidal moment, what is going to happen at literally at the amygdala level is when we are faced with any issue whatsoever, we are going to be hyper-reactive to it instead of pausing and thinking about the long-term reverberations and, uh, and ramifications because we're at this kind of heightened cortisol level, right? Because we uh, talked a little about when, when we have no official future, we're kind of like always on, we're always in the cortisol mode. So, so, so that being said, how we bring this back to how to bring long path into like our day-to-day -day way of being is this part of it is this trim tab approach. And so we're just, just so your listeners know, Buckminster Fuller, who is a very famous kind of architect and futurist, um, passed away several decades ago. But what, one of the things that he Actually, on, 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 his, on his tombstone where it says his name and his you know, date of birth and death, it says above that, it says, call me Trim Tab. Well, well, why did he put that? Because the Trim Tab is something is that a thing that he came up with because he was asked uh, in the 1940s by the U.S. Navy to help them think about how these, these cargo ships were getting so large that the rudders that were needed to steer them were, were you know, becoming cumbersome. They were 10, 15 feet long. It just didn't make sense. They couldn't figure out the hydraulics to turn these massive rudders. So he came up with this idea called the trim tab, which was literally like a four to five inch piece of steel that went at the very end of the rudder. And what he realized is if you just turned that small piece of steel at the end, that small trim tab, if you pointed it against the force of oncoming water, it itself would create a kind of positive feedback loop that would throw the rudder the rest of the way. So literally by kind of going into the pressure you would make big dramatic changes and you could steer these giant ships with a small four inch piece of steel. So why he put on his tombstone, call me trim tab was his belief that every one of us in our moment to moment actions, especially at scale can, can create long-term changes in any system. So what does this mean at the practical level? How do you live long path at the practical level? So you know, some people have picked up the book and are reading it and they're like, oh, I thought there's going to be a, you know, a book about scenarios and big futures planning, but it's really a book about how to live your life in a way that is conscious and actually thinking about what you do or don't do and the ramifications of that in the, in the short term and the long term. So an example of that, and there's a lot of exercises in the book is actually, mm -hmm. and this, this will sound very simple, but I'm recontextualizing it 
is between between any action and a reaction is a moment, right? In, in, in the brain, that's a synaptic juncture. And that can happen in, more often than not happens in, in milliseconds. But what Longpath asks us to do, and at first it's very awkward, and then it becomes something that you just kind of automatically do, <laughs> is to take that pause and think about whatever it is you're, however you're about to react to whatever it is. So in the book, I very early talk about getting a, a message from my daughter's school that she missed a Spanish assignment by five seconds ago and my kind of visceral reaction to that or, or something much, even much, much bigger, let's say political is thinking however, how I act in the next moment, how I react, what I do next, how is that going to both play out in the moment vis-a-vis the situation that I'm in with those around me and more specifically, how will that model a way of being a certain set of behaviors and reactions, not only for them, be it a loved one or a colleague, or even someone on the other side of the, you know, the protest line, how is that going to reverberate, not just with myself and with them, but for generations to come? Because what we know, and this is obviously, you know, based on science from Stanford and Northeastern, is that emotions are contagious. Behaviors are contagious. Sometimes it can not feel that way, especially when you're doing this with someone who is screaming and yelling at you. But I think Gandhi and MLK Jr. have given us great examples of what this looks like when you are living in a trim tab sense of being. It actually does and will change the future. Now, I know this can sound kind of new new age and woo-woo, but the fact of the matter is when we look at this in labs, when we look at this in situations where we've actually been able to control for groups of people and we have, you know, and we can isolate different variables, it's actually true. How you react in that moment, if you do it with an eye towards a longer term future, actually will change that future. Mm-hmm. Uh, fascinating. And, you know, I think that, I mean, the practical thing that you said here is taking that pause, which is very hard to do, whether we're talking about uh, re- relating to a child or a, or a partner or um, or a political opponent, right? <laughs> um, and I hadn't planned it, but all of you on this show today are parents of young children. Uh, so talk a little bit about, uh, because this is not just a theoret, long path is not just theoretical, it's actually personal. Um, and you're obviously, you know, building a future with your own children in mind. Um, so talk about that. Yeah, a look, bit. the so it's funny because pe- different people are reviewing the book. And I just I just got off a call with someone who's in a Washington, D.C. policy think tank who does like nuclear proliferation. And he's like, wow, you know. I read your book trying to think about how this would impact the work we do in nuclear proliferation on the world. He goes, but I have to be honest with you. The examples that you kept giving me, I was thinking about nuclear proliferation and the policy work. Then he said, but as a, as a, as a parent, as a father, I kept thinking of this as a, this became a parenting book because it kind of started kind of replacing the, the agency that one has as a parent. And by the way, doesn't have to be your own children, right? This this way of being is right. we're all kind of we we should all see ourselves as kind of children and being alloparenting, parenting by one another in a kind of in a collective communal sense. It changes the way you do what you do. Another example in the book is, uh, and and, I, and I've said this in a couple of different places is like you know you go 
look, the short pathway of dealing with a screaming child at a dinner table at a restaurant is to put a screen in front of them. The, the long path is to engage them in a conversation in a way of being that self-regulates emotions and actually uh, can lead to kind of more interesting conversations and ways of being. The re that's not a that's not and that's not always you can't always do that because maybe the kid's really hungry and you waited too long to eat so that's why long path isn't just about the future it's also about what we call transgenerational empathy which is thinking about the past so part of it is ensuring that as you move into this kind of you're going out to eat like where's your kid's blood sugar at like are you taking care of your future self and your future children in such a way that you can avoid some of these issues and confrontations in the first place uh, it's extremely difficult to do to actually think about your future self and future others but the exercises in the book are meant to kind of get you into that way of thinking and being not just at a cognitive layer but obviously at an emotional layer you know one of the things I, I talk about is what we have in our home is we have, like many people have photos of, the, of their family up, but we have photos of my parents and my wife's parents up and, you know, the generation that came before us. We have family photos, but we also have a, we have this blank photo frame that kind of trips people out sometimes. It's just, it's literally just a frame with a white <laughs> background. So uh -huh. what that represents to us as a family, as an individual, is generations to come. And it, it might sound kind of silly, but I walk by this, you know, two or three times a day, especially because, you know, like a lot of us, we spend more time at home. And it just gives me that half a second to remember like, oh, yeah, it's not just about me. There are others to come. And how am I influencing them? So it's not just how am I being a better self to future Ari, it's how am I, what and how am I doing in a way that is being better for future generations, specifically my future grandchildren. Look, my kids are teenagers. There's no grandchildren coming anytime soon. But the fact of the matter is how we raise, how we interact with our children and those around us of the next generation is going to greatly impact how they are with future generations. And so when we start to think about it through that way, that kind of lens, it starts to change how we interact and behave and model behaviors for our children and those around us of the next generation. Um, one of the other examples that you give is uh, leaving a chair empty at, or having an empty chair at the table uh, to represent future generations to come. So Nope. I know it's Elijah, but it's um, Elijah. For, so for you Jews, know it's Elijah. But, no one else knows it's Elijah. So, I know. so it comes from Elijah. Look, no. it comes from, and I know this is not always the best person to example. So one of the things that that Jeff Bezos started doing at Amazon is he would leave an empty chair <laughs> right. for the customer. And so whenever they got to a point in a conversation in a big meeting, he would point to the empty chair and he said, "Well, what does the customer want?" And so I kind of took from that the empty chair, but it was less about, you know, the quote unquote customer, which sometimes can lead to very short term decision making, even on, you know, on, on many levels. And I, that empty chair is for the future or future generations. So in folks that I work with, be it the UN or US State Department or, or corporations, I'll say, look, when we're, when we're having big meetings, leave that chair empty. It's for future customers. It's for future generations. It could even be for the future executive director or CEO, which, as you know, no leader ever wants to think about the leader that comes after them. But if they really want to make those wise decisions, the ones that actually can impact the far future for the better, they have to think about even who is going to replace them at some point. Of course. I mean, we, you know, of course. and I just said, we, you know, we do that with who's going to replace me 
in impacting next generations is going to be my children, then my grandchildren. So that's, that's easy to do because it deals with my own death and I can foresee that. It's very difficult for leaders to, to do that. But that's a lot of the work that we do and kind of coaching and working with them is saying, listen, at some point, you won't be in that chair. Someone else will be. How are you ensuring you are making decisions and you are passing the baton? I was, I was a track runner in high school and I ran the four by 100 relay. And so whereas we learned to run as fast as we could, the reality is what won or lost those races was how smoothly we passed the baton on to the next runner. And so the empty chair can be for those leaders to come and, and the decisions that we make are how smooth that baton will pass. One of the anxieties and fears that people have right now, and you, you mentioned it earlier, is the, the fear of relating to people who, with whom you disagree. I mean, we're a country that's deeply, deeply divided. Say a little bit, tell us a little bit about how Long Path, how a Long Path um, process can help us relate to people from whom we're so estranged whether it's in our own families or um, in our communities, uh, people on different sides of the political spectrum from where we sit. From where we sit. So it's interesting. I I talked about this earlier about, we were talking about the kind of the Exodus story and this kind of intertidal and being, you know, wandering in the desert. And, and it's my contention that what, what, what pulled us through that moment was this idea of this kind of this land of milk and honey. This, this ultimate aim was to get to a place that was the opposite of the desert, but was overflowing with abundance. And what I, what I have found, and, and you know, let me pivot for a second. I, I was the head of conflict resolution at UC Berkeley for the Student Co-op Association. So what that meant was I carried a pager around in the late 90s, and I'd get a page from these house managers saying, we have a conflict in the house. These two roommates or these folks are fighting. Can you come, come, come resolve it? And I, and I would go and I would kind of work on not, quote unquote, resolving the conflict, but transforming the conflict, conflict transformation. And what I found was the best way to kind of transform the conflict wasn't to start with where we are right now, but to actually start at the end and work backwards, what we call backcasting in the, in the, in the futuring world. And so what that meant was finding and getting to a place where we could talk about what that land of milk and honey looked like for all interested parties and then work backwards to how we got there. Because what I found was that even though this is counterintuitive, the future itself is an uncontested space for a brief moment when you ask people from a values-based and morals-based what is it that they want the world to look and feel like after they are gone? And that's a whole other conversation about lifespan bias and death awareness. So what we found is when we talk about the land of hungry, milk and honey, or what I call in the book, telos, ultimate aim, is by starting there and saying, well, what's the most important to you? What is the world you want your children and your grandchildren to live in? We actually start to find a lot of commonality. We actually start to find we all want some of the same things for our children and our grandchildren. There, it may not be a perfect overlap, but it's more overlappy than where we are as adults with our own baggage and our own traumas and our own ways of seeing the world. And so the key, what Long Path helps us do is by, by starting at the end and moving backwards, we can start to engage in those conversations. And so, you know, we, Catherine, when, when we were first kind of working together, we, we were working on some marriage equality and some other work and around kind of like, how do you have those, very difficult conversations around the Thanksgiving table. Here's the thing. 
don't start with today. Don't start about, you know, don't talk about the midterms. Don't talk about race and class as it is today. Talk about what is it you would like to see the world to come actually look like? What is that? Mm-hmm. And, I, and when I say the messianic moment, I don't mean the Messiah, but for some of they do. For me, the messianic moment is this ongoing verb and way of being in the world where we are kind of where it, what we call protopian, which isn't perfect, but it's a world better than today. So having those mm-hmm. conversations start with what you want it to look like can become a way of engaging folks in that conversation. Now, look, the, the fact of the matter is, I don't want to be Pollyannish. Some folks just don't want to engage in that. And, and it is what it is. But I, what I would advocate for your listeners to do is start with the end in mind. And if you mm-hmm. do that with the folks that are the most adversarial, if they're open to doing it, uh, and by the way, people are always talking to, people are more often than not very open to talking about what they want for their grandkids and their kids. And, and sometimes that's actually just a projection of what they want for themselves, but they don't feel safe enough sure. to have that conversation. But if you start far out there and find the commonality, then you say, well, then what has to be true for that to happen? Well, what has to be true for that to happen? That's classic mm-hmm. backcasting work that I've been doing for 20 years, but in a more kind of democratic governance uh, in the civil society space we find that we're able to start finding ways that people will actually communicate across seemingly large chasms because they are now speaking towards a world that they want to see manifest as opposed to the one that they don't want to see manifest. And from there, you can start doing the work that needs to happen. Ari, we've just scratched the surface, but it it is so great to be with you again and to hear how Long Path is progressing. Thanks for offering us a framework and a way to work towards a future of promise and hope on State of Belief Radio. Futurist Ari Wallach is a social system strategist, founder and CEO of Long Path Labs and author of Long Path, Becoming the Great Ancestors Our Future Needs. Ari's TED Talk on Long Path has been viewed over 2.5 million times and translated into 19 languages. Ari, thank you. My pleasure. We're just getting started with this week's show themed Dread Not, Facing the Future with Less Fear. Up next, writer and public speaker Wajahat Ali and later Women's March Deputy Executive Director Caitlin Breedlove. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. Wajahad Ali is a familiar face for viewers of insightful, brilliant, comical commentary on the challenges and opportunities of our culture today. His memoir, published early this year, is entitled Go Back to Where You Came From and Other Helpful Recommendations on How to Become American. And I'm happy to have him with us today. Waj, welcome to State of Belief Radio. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Great to see you. Great to hear from you. Uh, I appreciate the invitation and thank you for tolerating my nerd toys behind me. And I, I've been told <laughs> that nerds of all faiths are welcome uh, on this podcast. Oh, you, so yes, I, that is absolutely true. Um, you and I have known each other for almost a decade or more, and I've heard 
bits and pieces of your personal story, but but the book, Go Back to Where You Came From, is amazing, heartbreaking, funny, wrenching, wise, excruciatingly painful, and hopeful. Um, so I want to thank you for being willing to go public in such a powerful way. And um, not many people are willing to let it sort of all hang out in the way that you have. Um, in a non-creepy, non-Harvey-Weinstein <laughs> uh, non, like, uh, way, yes. Uh, but I appreciate the, the, the figurative analysis. You know, yeah. someone, said, someone said yesterday, it was like an open book, a book that was an open book. And I'm like, I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah, absolutely. Did you plan it that way? You know, that's a, that's a very good question. Thank you for your kind words uh, about the book. And and I mentioned things in the book that people have known me for my whole life mm-hmm. didn't know. And so afterwards, they're like, you know, you were going through all this and we were friends. And you didn't tell me. And, I, oh, you should have told me or yeah. I, I wish I could have been a better friend. And I'm like, that's fine. Uh, this is, There's no airing of grievances. This is not mm-hmm. a Trump rally. It wasn't Festivus. Uh, it, the, the decision was that if you're willing to tell the story, the only way to tell it is to tell it honestly mm-hmm. and to be open about yes. it. You have to go all mm-hmm. in because if you part of my language, half-assed it, and, and you, you held back, the listener with whom I'm having a conversation with will realize it. You know it. Yes. And, and you'll be like, oh, he held back. He's not really being that honest about it. So once you make this decision with this intent, my uh, advice to those who are writing similar books is the more honest and open you are, and you don't have to share all your secrets. Some secrets are right. meant to be secrets. Um, it, 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 it's in the long-term interest because the book talks about mental health issues, talks about poverty, talks about mm-hmm. racism, and talks about incarceration. Many of the warts, Catherine, many of the, yeah. the bad parts of our story or of our family that we don't air, right? Everyone wants to be perfect because what will people say? So even though if you're suffering and you're crying, you smile with your white teeth smiling and you put there, you know, put up that fake face and everything's perfect. Mm-hmm. Everything's fine. Keep waving. And yet people are broken inside or they're uh, breaking. Mm-hmm. And, and I realized mm-hmm. the, as a result of writing the book and plus the reception of the book, the things that I thought you know, there's always that fear, that whisper in the back of your head. Oh, they'll say this. Oh, they'll laugh at you. They're all going to laugh at you. Uh, it didn't happen. In fact, I got the exact mm-hmm. opposite response, which was, thank you so much for writing this. It's given me courage to maybe tell my story. I'm so glad you did yes. it. I'm also going through this. We need more of this. So in a way, it was very yes. affirming. And I knew I had a feeling that I, I, if I went all in, I had a feeling and a hope that that would be the response that a lot of folks would see themselves in the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, and I think that's absolutely true. And uh, yeah, I wish I had the feeling that I wish that I had known um, more to, to reach out. And you talk about compassion. I think it does evoke compassion. Um, So as, as the book demonstrates, you've faced heart stopping fear, both personally and professionally. Um, we're going to get to some of this, but right now, as a social pundit, and you are, um, help us frame and understand uh, where we are in America today, uh-huh. <laughs> America today, with the rise of white Christian nationalism, extremist violence, midterms looming, um, and I could quote a lot of your book, um, but... One of the quotes that I liked in America, communities of color have always put our economic anxieties second to placate the economic anxieties of real Americans, namely white Americans. So however you want to pick up on that, but help us understand this 
rise of white Christian nationalism, erosion of religious freedom and other freedoms. It's all very Where connected. Where are we today? It's all connected. Yeah. You know, what I've said before is we're witnessing the death rattle of white supremacy that has transformed into a death march in here and in Europe. And uh, what we're witnessing is that they're playing for all the marbles. It's now become a zero-sum game. So back in the day, it was like, ah, we'll tolerate you. We'll let you rent the house. We'll give you a room in the house as long as we're the masters. And now it's like, oh, no, if we let you rent the house, you're going to take over the house. So instead, we're going to have to burn down not just the house. We will burn down the village. And white supremacy ultimately has been very self-destructive, right? And so you're witnessing this self-destructive impulse of white supremacy both in here and in Europe, Brexit, Trumpism, that in order to stay on top, they're willing to burn it all, including themselves. That's what I want to say, including themselves. And so Jonathan Metzl uh, has written this book a couple of years ago called Dying for Whiteness, where he went around the, in the, the Southwest and uh, in the Midwest and interviewed people. And, he, and his analysis showed that, you know, when people ask themselves, well, like, why are these folks voting for people who take away Social Security and Medicare and like don't believe in climate change? Like, why are they voting against their own interest? Mm-hmm. Well, they are voting for their interest if their interest is white supremacy. My tribe will be on top, right? And we don't need to do a historical lesson here. This has been the, the story of America. If you grew up in the 60s and 70s, you should have been paying attention to Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and the marches. Like, this has been ongoing. But the difference now with the election of Barack Hussein Obama, and I mentioned Hussein on purpose, right? With the election of our first Muslim president and the ascension of a black man to the White House and the ascension of a black family, quote unquote, replacing all other white families, in my opinion, and all the data, the data seems to reflect this and also the political rhetoric, it, uh, if you will, supercharged the fear of, of, of whiteness that, oh, my God, if we can have a black man, a popular black man, an intelligent black man with an intelligent black wife with toned arms, reach up to the White House. This is the realization of our worst nightmare. They have replaced us. And you saw kind of this go in overdrive. And lo and behold, I do not think. It is a coincidence that the person who led the hateful, racist birth or conspiracy was the person chosen by millions of Americans to become the president after Obama, Trump. And it's after a beautiful Obama. microcosm of America. Every time, if you've paid attention to American history, if you're a student of American history, we have pushed and expanded this country to include the rest of us as co-protagonists mm-hmm. as we pushed forward with rights for women, for, for workers, uh, for black folks, for people of color, for LGBTQ. You have noticed for every two steps forward, uh, whiteness right. drags us violently back one step. And so you're witnessing this now, Catherine, but you're witnessing this with the uh, onslaught of climate change, disinformation, disruptions. Things are moving too quickly. Things are changing too quickly. The ground is shifting. Mm-hmm. I have no balance. This is no longer the America of my daddy and granddaddy. Oh, no, this is it. World War Three. We have to play for all the marbles, Armageddon, Rapture. And there is a reason why when it came to the 2016 election, the, mm-hmm. the memo that got popularized in the right wing was not the audit that they did after the 2012 election where they decided in order for the Republican Party to survive, we have to be like more open to Latinos and immigrants. They literally rejected all of that and they came up with something called the Flight 93 Manifesto, which they said this election is for the soul of America and we have to like Flight 93, charge the cockpit or die. And then you throw in Christian nationalism and you have the celestial stamp from God 
that says that this is for all the marbles. This earth is a, a temporary plane. We have to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. And America is a chosen right. land and white Americans are the chosen prophets by any means necessary. We don't care about the constitution. We don't care about race. We don't care about law and order. We care about putting the law of God in the hands of white men on earth. That is our duty. And God commands us to do it. F everything else. And we will do it no matter what. And voila, you're witnessing mm-hmm. in real time. And you and I have been warning about it. But as oftentimes the people who warned about it were accurate, were seen as crazy. And now you're seeing it without the bell whistles, without the dog whistles, without the subtlety. You're literally, and I'm using the word literally as it's meant to be used. You're hearing them without any subtlety tell you exactly their plan. My guest is Wajahat Ali. You talk about how to fight back by building our own multicultural Avengers. Mm. Do you remember you wrote that multicultural Avengers? It's good, right? Yeah. <laughs> so tell us more about uh, about how we can become <clears throat> those multicultural Avengers, how we can work together to do that. So I, I think especially in this podcast, uh, especially with this audience, they'll be more receptive to this message is with what we're seeing outside our own homes and what we're seeing on the news, apathy and cynicism and despair is the natural emotion and hopelessness. Yes. And what that and does fear. and fear. Mm-hmm. And what you say instead is, okay, F it. I'm going to take care of my own. It'll be me and my wife and my kids. I'll find a small pocket in the universe and, you know, mm-hmm. I'll batten down the hatches and every person for themselves. And that's it. Very instinctual, natural reaction. Can't blame it. I would invite you though, to invest in hope. And if you don't have hope, faith, and realize we're in this together. And if you think that's just a a Hallmark card sentiment, I'll give you two examples, the pandemic and climate change. If you think you can outrun both, you are wrong. Uh, They are flattening all of us, but flattening all of us unequally. As we have seen both with the pandemic and climate change, it is, as predicted, affecting the black and brown and poor folks more unequally than the rest of us, but none of us can escape it. And so I would recommend with those two glaring examples right in front of us, and also I would say America threatening to become a fascist Christian nationalist state, Mm -hmm. uh, fascists are good to you until they're not. It's good to be friends with fascists until it isn't. The rich and the powerful pave the road towards fascism because they normalize it because it's good for business until it isn't. And Mm -hmm. if you don't believe me, look at Italy, look at Germany, look at Europe. And listen to the authors and experts of fascism. They'll tell you that. So instead, I recommend investing in hope. I also believe God has given everyone a superpower. Everyone has something. Every animal has some defense mechanism. Even like a skunk can fart. Okay. There's something there. And people are listening to me and they're saying, Waj, I'm a nobody. You know, you're, you and Catherine have a podcast. You get on TV. And I'm like, I love nobodies. Some of my favorite people are nobodies. I'm a nobody. (laughs) And and the power of the homemaker, the power of a mother or a father, you can model in your daily behavior and rhetoric what you want this country to become. And if you think your kids aren't paying attention, uh, look at your life, look at your family's life, look at all the dysfunction in your families, both the good, the bad, and the ugly are because of how your parents raised you, ladies and gentlemen. You can model that behavior, which will have an impact on generations. You can... uh, be more active in school boards. School boards across the country are going to be the site of this cultural war, mm-hmm. ladies and gentlemen. It's already mm-hmm. happening. I've been trying to warn about it, but now it's mm-hmm. out in the open because now Republicans are telling you that we're trying to take over school boards. But where we come out in force because we have the majority, we win those fights. You can have a radicalized, zealous, 
minority that wakes up every day with a mission versus a flabby moderate majority and that minority will carve through us like butter each and every time but if the majority mm-hmm. wakes up and flexes and invests all in with this multicultural avengers mm-hmm. you can fight and win and mm-hmm. so that's what i recommend people do is trade your despair for hope trade your apathy mm-hmm. for faith reach out across the aisle see that there's allies be empowered with whatever superhero talent that you have. Even if you're a homemaker, you can change your family. You can change your local school district. The bar is low. Morons are running for elected office. You can run for elected office. Go reach out to a synagogue or a temple and say, hey, I'm the local friendly neighborhood Christian. I'm the Muslim. How can we be allies? Literally, that's all it takes, ladies and gentlemen. When you see, and the last thing I'll say is thank you for letting me filibuster, but if you see where (laughs) interfaith partnerships have been created on the the local level, it's usually just a mom or a dad saying, I'm sick and tired of this. I just picked up the phone and I just called. And, and we had right. hummus. And the first couple of meetings were yes. awkward, but we all liked hummus and crudités. And then that hummus and crudités led to a deeper conversation. And now we have each other's back. Uh, and, and so this is where you can take this model of the multicultural Avengers. I, I, you know, people might laugh at it, but it's very deliberate analogy that I made that Yes. You know, sometimes you have Hawkeye. People laugh at Hawkeye. He's like, he has no superpowers. He just has a bow and arrow. He's part <laughs> of the Avengers. He saves lives. Not everyone has to be right. Superman or Wonder Woman. Yeah. 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 Okay. That's, that is great. And I know that a lot of the work um, that you do in the world is because you're trying to create the world for your children, your beautiful three children, and you write about them in the book. Um, say a little bit about the personal uh, struggle that you went through um, with your daughter's Mm. illness and what you learned from that, um, how you, you know, came through that fearful time to a place of greater hope. About six months before the pandemic, right before my daughter turned three, this was about three years ago, April, um, while I was giving a TED talk or preparing to give a TED talk on the main stage, my wife calls me crying. My wife never calls me crying in the morning and says, you know, I thought there's these bumps there was this bump on Nuseba's stomach and I took her to the hospital. I'm like, but did she eat something? And then like, you know, I just, I'm like, there wasn't a, a, I thought I would hope so. Or I thought it was gas, but you know, she's a doctor. Her spidey sense got kind of triggered. And she was, I was hoping maybe she ate like a toy and didn't realize something, which is also frightening, but they found, you know, preliminary scans found these bumps on her liver. And she goes, that's not good. That's cancer. I'm like, what are you talking? I just left her. What are you talking about cancer? And like, you know, I'm a layman. I'm like a two-year-old getting cancer. What? And she goes, it's most likely, you know, I think it's stage four. I'm, <laughs> my first response, some dark humor is necessary. I'm like, is that one of the good stages? I didn't know. I thought like, you know, mm-hmm. you know, like maybe sure. it's a good stage. Like DEFCON 5, mm-hmm. people think is bad, but DEFCON 5 is the best one out of all the DEFCONs, right? DEFCON 1 is the scariest. So I thought maybe stage four is like mild cancer. And she goes, no, that's really bad. That means most likely the cancer is all over the liver and it's moved to the lung. They found a dot in the lung. So I was like, should I come back? Should I not come back? My mom was there. And then and then the day that I had, two days later, when I had to go give my TED Talk, the confirmation came. And for those two days, I was like, even though my wife's a doctor, she said, listen, I'm telling you, it's stage four. I'm like, let's just wait. Let's just wait until it's confirmed. And then it yes. got confirmed. And then I had to go give this talk. And this talk was the case for having kids, which I thought was the, the rich irony, the case for having kids. Oh, but by the way, my two-year-old daughter has cancer. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, this poor girl for the first two months, there were many periods, Catherine, where everything wrong that could happen went wrong. And the doctor's like, we've never seen this happen, like every setback. And there was a period where we didn't think she'd survive. And then they're like, she needs a full liver transplant. We just can't excise this because 
it took over all the liver and there was a dot in the lung and the dot in the lung scared us also because, oh my God, then you have lung cancer. And then what happens if you don't get that? And so damaging chemotherapy, you know, cancer plays for all the marbles. It's a remorseless killer. Um, You know, your finances are gone. You you just become cancer parents. You become hospital parents. Yes. And we found out my wife was pregnant at the time. So my wife was a superhero and my son, his routine got disrupted. Poor boy. He was four at the time. And, you know, he's such a sweet, good, empathetic. We just got so lucky. He just turned eight, just a sweet kid. And um, he was, you know, but he also was like, where is mama? Where is no, no. Like they, they understand what's happening, but yes, you know, they're smart. They're, they're, they're emotional. And, and so you lose your money, you lose your time, you lose everything. And then we needed a liver uh, donor. And this is the power of story and, and how it all connects to the, what you were asking about the, you know, multicultural Avengers. The one talent I might have is maybe I might be a storyteller. And so I'm like, you know, let's go public with this story. Let's put a name to the story in Nuseba. Mm-hmm. And I have these outlets. I have social media. I was at CNN at the time. I have New York Times. Let me just write about it for both awareness and to help my daughter because I need a, 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 yes. a, a donor. And as a result of that, you know, over 500 people, most of them who I've never met, stepped up to be potential donors, liver donors for Nuseba. Mm-hmm. And one person in particular emailed me. I never met this guy before. He said, listen, <laughs> I hate everything you write. I hate everything you tweet. I hate all of your politics. But I just want to let you know that I prayed for your daughter and I signed up to be a donor. Mm-hmm. And we finally got an anonymous liver donor who later made himself known, Shanzi here, who just mm-hmm. stepped up because he read about it. And my daughter got saved. Uh, and she did chemo afterwards and she's now cancer free and we just celebrate celebrate her sixth birthday last month mm. and you know our story should not be an outlier story but it often is, is because this country oftentimes doesn't right. invest in healthcare, and those people who are poor and don't have health insurance but the story is that what i realized in the cynical times that there's a lot of people out there who still have the capacity yes. and intention to do good and sometimes mm-hmm. you just need to invite them to do good and it's one mm-hmm. of those things that it took a multicultural coalition to save Nuseba. Yes, yes. That's a that's a incredible endorsement for the work that we all need to be about to join together. Um, one last question. You say that America is both insane and lovable. Um, given all that we're going through, all that we've been through, just say a little bit about... Why, uh, why you think all, why, why you think America, why do you think America is still lovable? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an absurd country. It's a country where you and I can sit here and you know talk about faith uh, freely, and it's a it's a country where millions of Americans elect a man who wants a Muslim ban. It's an America where we tout our, our freedom and democracy, and we have a political party that led an insurrection on the Capitol. It's a, it's a country mm-hmm. that says, look at the Statue of Liberty inviting everyone to its shores, except those from <laughs> countries. It's a country that says anyone can make it. Like Wajad's father, who came after the 1965 Immigration Nationality Act and pulled themselves up from the bootstraps. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but then it also says, oh, you're trying to replace us. Go away. Mm-hmm. And, and yes. so the, you need to understand the warts and the ugliness and the racism and, and also the joy and the beauty and the success stories to truly understand this country. Oftentimes, we only focus on the latter, the American dream, but no one talks about the American nightmare. Oftentimes, we talk about the exceptionalism, but we don't talk about mm-hmm. the people who still have the boots on their necks. Oftentimes, we talk about anyone can make it, but we don't talk about the people who don't make it. And I think with the book, I tried to show you uh, America 
as it was lived by me and as I was a witness to it, where I think I have an expansive view of this country compared to most of my colleagues, because I simultaneously survived both the dream and the nightmare at the same time. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I mm -hmm. survived the gamut. And mm -hmm. it gives me hope because it's a rough draft. It's an experiment. It's an experiment that has not ended yet. It's a rough mm -hmm. draft whose mm -hmm. story has not finished yet. And that's the potential is that the story is still being written, but we need more people to pick up at the pen and write the story, in my opinion, mm -hmm. which expands the tent and includes the rest of us as its equal co-protagonists. Yes, and I believe that's yes. the only way to make it in a multiracial country. This is the mm -hmm. this is the experiment of the world. Can this country make it? What yes. a weird, freaky country. But, you know, yes. if you're a white supremacist or a Christian nationalist or conservative or a liberal extreme, whatever you are, you have to realize that the only way this country will succeed, the only way Americans will make it is if we make it together. You have to expand the tent. There is no other way this country is making it. If you restrict it due to your Christian nationalism or white supremacy and you think your tribe is going to make it, it is a pathway towards self-destruction. If you don't believe me, look at look out the window. Look at January 6th. Look at Trumpism. Yes. It won't work, ladies and gentlemen. And so we need more and more people to realize, oh, if I want to succeed, Catherine has to succeed. If Catherine mm -hmm. succeeds, Rob has to succeed. If Rob su succeeds, yeah. Herschel has to succeed, not Herschel Walker, but the other Herschels, right? Uh, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, all these folks need to succeed to make it. And even the Herschel Walkers, right? They have a right to live. They have to write the right to their nutty views. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're also our neighbors, but we cannot be hijacked by the extremism of the minority. The majority has mm -hmm. to flex. The caravan moves forward, right? The 70% mm -hmm. have to move forward. We cannot be hijacked by the 30% anymore. But for me, the door is always open, yes. right? So my hand is always reaching out across the aisle. If you want to join the caravan, if you want to move forward, if you want more yeah. rights for women, more rights for the world, join us. We cannot be hijacked by your regressive views. But know this, the door is always open. My hand is always reaching out. And inshallah, you can join mm -hmm. the caravan. And I think that's the prophetic mm -hmm. model. It allows you to have hope. Mm -hmm. It gives you, allows you to throw your stick in the ground like Moses. But it also gives an opening and an off-ramp to those who want to join us. And it also allows a chance mm -hmm. for forgiveness, love, and redemption. Mm. Wow. Thank you. Thank you, Waj, so much for being here and for these words and for your great book and um, for all the work that you're doing to create the world that uh, will welcome everyone. We're trying. And thank you, Catherine, for all the work you've done. Uh, you've spent your life at yeah. this. And I hope uh, I hope you're enjoying the fruits of your labor. <laughs> Absolutely. So Wajahad Ali is a New York Times contributing op-ed writer who regularly appears on cable news and radio to discuss politics, religion, foreign policy, and culture. His provocative memoir is entitled Go Back to Where You Came From and Other Helpful Recommendations on How to Become American. I recommend this book highly. Waj, thank you so much for being part of Dreadnought, Facing the Future with Less Fear and More Hope. Thank you, Catherine. I'm Catherine Henderson. It was an unprecedented outpouring of sisterhood. The Women's March in 2017 was the largest single-day protest in U.S. history, 
It's incredibly difficult to maintain the galvanizing focus of even that seminal moment in our short attention span era. But the issues remain critical and the organizing continues in the capable hands of women's march leaders, including Deputy Executive Director Caitlin Breedlove. It's work the future rests on. I'm so happy to have Caitlin with me today for Dread Not, facing the future with less fear and more hope. So, Caitlin, my friend, so good to welcome you here to State of Belief Radio. It's so great to be with you in any capacity and, and really happy to be here with State of Belief this morning. You've just come off this major gathering in Houston of the Women's March. Um, I couldn't attend, but I'm really eager for for myself and for our listeners to tell us what happened there and um, and what's on the horizon in the work as as we all face into the midterm elections. Yeah, so I think the theme of really thinking beyond our fear and what is possible feels really important. Um, one of the signs that I had long designed for Women's March that we had not had a chance to debut. Um, we actually debuted and it's women can make the world anew. Um, say it one more time. Women can make the world anew. Okay. And it's a, a picture of, um, a horizon. And so it was one of my favorite banners that we had at the women's March convention. And of course, inside of my spiritual beliefs, women are not making the world anew by ourselves. Um, uh, we are in deep relationship to our planet and, um, the greater force, and, you know, I think that this, this latest convention was, you know, an experiment in a lot of ways to see, could we take the ongoing force that Women's March has been able to be in the streets and mobilizations and land it in a convention. So for folks who don't know, um, while the first Women's March was, as Catherine already beautifully put, single biggest uh, day-long protest, Women's March has been very active um, in protests and demonstrations and ongoing marches since its inception. Um, And we regularly have between 500 and 650 sister marches. So in addition to having 20,000 or 50,000 in D.C., often, um, you know, we had 20,000 in Austin last fall, right? There are, there are large um, marches that happen all the time. The convention was really different. You know, we see our focus as being a welcoming on-ramp for new activists, new women leaders, um, women who may not have been in community organizing or mobilization, but know that it's their planet and their families and their lives too, and their fate hangs in the balance and they want to get um, in the fight and in the struggle. So the convention itself was 10,000 women participating online. And that's a rough estimate. We actually think it may have been more um, 1700 women uh, participating in person. And for those who put on conventions or conferences, um, the average workshop there were hundreds of workshops by so many different um, women led mm-hmm. groups and um, gender non-conforming led organizations as well. And there was a 9.6 approval rating for the workshops, which wow. I really think speaks to the excitement and also just the caliber of um, not just Women's March team, but but our partners um, doing incredible work. You know, there were trainings on, you know, how you build a friendship model um, into organizing. Mm-hmm. There were uh, trainings on, you know, how you can, Think about being civically involved in your small town. 
Uh, you know, there was a whole gamut of, of things happening as well as the pre-convening of major, um, all of the major gender justice groups in the, organi- in the, in the country, mm-hmm. excuse me, were invited to participate. And I guess people can find these workshops on the Women's March site if, if people want to catch up, right? Absolutely. Great. Um, you know, recently, I want, I want to get to some policy issues, some specific issues. Um, recently, we've seen, you know, SCOTUS render decisions that erode the meaning of religious freedom, uh, freedoms of all kinds, including uh, the right to bodily autonomy and reproductive justice um, in ways that cause harm to individuals, to families, and I would say to our collective well-being across the country for, for all of us. Um, and sometimes, sometimes I think it almost feels like it's too late, uh, depending on the day and depending on how we're feeling. But uh, tell tell us why it's not. It's not too late with all of these issues. Absolutely. I mean, when I think about it being too late or what time it is, I always think about Grace Lee Boggs saying, what time is it on the clock of the universe, right? Um, okay. So it's for sure not too late. And at the same time, um, you know, we have lost a constitutional right for 51% of the people that live in this country. Um, And that is extremely profound, no matter where you sit on the medical procedure of abortion. And as my dear friend and your dear friendship for Bronsnick always Mm -hmm. reminds me, whether you're straight or LGBTQ or any age, this is not just a medical procedure. This is the kind of life defining medical procedure um, inside of reproductive care. And we know that there are several, you know, as someone who yes. is a cancer survivor and, you know, was sterilized in my cancer treatment, you know, I, I think about it having never had an abortion or never needed an abortion. That's also life-changing reproductive care, right? But there are, we're actually talking about uh, a moment where I think pulling on our faith and spiritual traditions to actually understand this isn't just about losing abortion. This is about what happens spiritually in a country when you force people to give birth, right? We're talking about forced birth. And that's not only why it's incredibly difficult and heavy, what's happening and profound, Mm -hmm. I think, in a negative way, but it's also why it simply can't be too late because it's just not too late for the 11-year-olds and 12-year-olds who are enduring, you know, unspeakable harm. Um, it's not too late for, you know, those who need their lives saved. It's not too late for anyone, for any reason, right, to be able to make those kind of choices about their bodies. And it's also not too late to um, fight back against a basically racist, classist, xenophobic agenda that, you know, we have uh, someone like Alito saying baby supply, right? You know, that's a completely dehumanizing term that, across the religious spectrum, we should all believe is against our religious values. When you're talking about, you know, making more homegrown babies, essentially, in order to close our borders even more thoroughly to immigrants, even though um, we really do have worker shortages in this country, right? Worker shortages, not only in the fields, but in neurosurgery across the class spectrum. And so I think that the reason it's not too late also is that we are seeing from the victories in Kansas, to all these other places we're working, everyday women and our allies are rising mm-hmm. up, 
are right. rising up and saying, this is a bridge too far um, across the religious spectrum, across geography, mm-hmm. across race, mm-hmm. across class and age. And the Women's March is a major galvanizer of that. So if every women who are working two or three jobs, like this young woman, Mandy, I met from San Antonio who cleans houses and she left her two and four year old with her husband and said, my friends couldn't come, but I came to the convention anyway. Like if Mandy can do it, I know I can do it. And I know we Mm -hmm. have to do it. It's not going to be overnight. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's why we are our faith and our values, because this is going to be a marathon, not a sprint. We support as Women's March, the executive orders that are needed. And we know that what we've lost is massive and the fight to win it will not be easy or quick. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I know that you, you have personal roots uh, in your family in Eastern Europe, right? Mm -hmm. And I know that you've done research there, traveled there, spent time there looking at um, anti-democratic forces and how you can really lose um, quicker than you think. Um, right, all sorts of rights and freedoms and that we take for granted. What, what have you learned? Tell us something about what you've learned from those other contexts that can give us some uh, wisdom here. So I love that you asked me this question because I love to talk about it, as you know, Catherine. From our- <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, yay, I get to talk yay. about this. Um, unfortunately, the, the answers are not yay, but um, yeah. I am. Uh, I think it's very important to listen around the world whenever we can. My uh, my own immediate experience is my mom is half German and half Polish, immigrated here as a kid. Um, so you know, when I think about what's happening in Eastern Europe, we need to understand the way Christian nationalism and white nationalism mm-hmm. have really um, wreaked havoc in Eastern Europe, but also the class dimensions of that for a very long mm-hmm. time. You know. Eastern Europeans have been the toxic dumping ground and the sort of like labor ground for everybody from Western Europe's nannies to, um, you know, laying, laying the concrete, right? Mm-hmm. And so what you have is, as the writer Gene Hardesty coined the phrase, mobilizing resentment, you know, you build resentment between mm-hmm. groups of people and then you're able to mobilize that based on, based on race and also in right. Eastern Europe based on ethnicity. And so I think that's a really concerning um, approach here. I think the other thing that is really important to understand is that um, <clears throat> I don't speak fluent Russian, but Slavic root languages are, are very different than English. And so if you understand one, you can often understand parts of another. And Putin, for example, is very lost in translation. He's, a, he's very lost in translation. I believe that when you look at the literal translations or the really good translations, you come to understand that the rhetoric is um, not exactly religious and spiritual, but it's apocalyptic. Uh-huh. Uh, it's more like watching Lord of the Rings than watching, uh, you know, uh, CBS News, right? So mm-hmm. it's a lot talking about the motherland, the holy words, yes. the meaning. And, and I think that's really important for religious and spiritual communities to understand is that that language is not that different from some of the forces in the right wing here, right? That are really... Mm-hmm really galvanizing their base to see the issues as life and death, spiritual good versus evil. Um, It's really interesting to look how some of that then becomes an excuse to completely erode a democratic process, especially because there is so much um, tainted history and um, injured democracy in the U.S. that we actually have to look at the fact that 
you know, we're seeing people turned essentially against democracy who are not only white, yes. right? We're seeing people say, this has never worked for you. Uh, it's a ripoff. We have something that works better, right? As well as the fact that the final example I'll give is that if we compare flyers that the right wing use um, yes. in rural communities like West Virginia, talking about the white, the war, the fight for the white race, right. you know, white people dying of opioids, it's not that different than some of the threads of the narrative that Putin used to ex- establish um, really the chokehold that he now has on a huge, mm-hmm. huge country and a big part of a, mm-hmm. of a continent. So mm-hmm. I think those are some of the important Thanks, Catherine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's that is so that is so helpful. You mentioned a few minutes ago how so many of us live with fear and loss um, and grief during the pandemic, and you actually faced cancer. And you've talked about that in your threshold series on Medium, and you talked about how it was hard to that you made fewer plans because you didn't know the plans that you could make. And, and you sort of likened that to um, the whole country. You, you said in, in one statement, the whole country is in a cocoon of loss and disconnection and seems unsure about how many plans it should make for itself. Um, can you talk a little bit about, uh, if you're willing to, about what this um, passage for you has been like? And um, and what insight and wisdom you've gained. I, I know that it's been um, a time of enormous pain, but also enormous learning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. I'm happy to talk about it. You know, one in three women in this country will face cancer. Um, I <clears throat> had ovarian cancer. So that's a cancer that um, 85% of ovarian um cancer victims just pass away. Uh, so you go through a point in the treatment where trying to figure out, are you going to, you know, hospice or are you going into chemotherapy very early in the treatment for me? I have a small son, he's four. Um, and this was happening when I was 39. So I was a good amount, good 20 years younger than most of the women um, and folks with ovaries who don't identify as women in these support groups. Um, so I say that just to give a sense of kind of where the journey was. And I think, um, for me, you know, I found out some really, some really basic stuff about living, to be honest, you know, I realized how afraid I had been, um, sometimes to say my truth, Mm -hmm. say the real thing, you know, I've been a community organizer for 20 years. And I think being on that particular threshold, um, in addition to all of the spiritual lessons and the kind of ancestral guidance and presence that I, that I had in my life, um, you know, I really realized how important truth telling is to me and my truth may not be everyone else's truth, but I think our movements deserve us to take Mm -hmm. risks. I think I was a very diplomatic person before cancer and I think that's okay. (laughs) Um, But I also think that I have come to a place where I understand the importance of, taking care of myself, saying what I know is true and making that contribution. And I also honestly realized that I was um, terrified of some of the things that I had to offer, which meant it perverted some of my gifts. Um, I was not a person. I was actually a person, as you know, Catherine, who was like, I don't have anything to say. I've been a writer my whole adult life, but I'm not going to write a book. Um, 
And I wrote a, a book um, that is a memoir about um, cancer. And the reason I wrote it, um, it'll be out in the fall, probably of 2023. Mm -hmm. The reason I wrote it was because I was sad and lonely and in cancer treatment using opioids. And I couldn't find very much that was that current or recent. Um, thank God for Audre Lorde's The Cancer Journals, which I would never compare yeah. my, my book to, but I couldn't find that mm -hmm. much uh, for folks like me. And so the reason I bring that up is that, um, shout out to Adrienne Marie Brown, yes. who um, she and the press will be publishing this book. But when she asked me, she said like, Caitlin, this could be like a political statement, you know, from the margins about illness and health, you know, these different books. I said, no, I just want it to be a book for other women who are not, um, you know, inside of a sort of pink ribbon, uh, saccharine, in my opinion, overly optimistic, bright version of mm -hmm. uh, talking about cancer, but who are really uh, queer people, single moms, right. you know, going through in red states, you know, young, whatever it is, we're outside of the margins in this journey. And so I guess what I really gleaned from it is that, um, you know, we have really specific talents and contributions to make in this lifetime. And they're pr primarily collaborative, but where, where we have that specific to bring that that's what we have to bring in. And that's what I want to offer. And I also think it's incredibly life-giving. Yes. Um, it's incredibly giving, giving because it brings the community to you that you need and it helps you create boundaries around things you mm -hmm. don't need. And I think it also has just really, I would shout out the Women's March because the kind of care I got um, from a Women's March, the kind of health insurance, the kind of yes. medical leave made me believe feminism is possible in organizations. And um, it made me want to keep of fighting, course. honestly. Uh, because I thought, oh, this, this is what we say we're about is what I, mm -hmm. what I got mm -hmm. there. And, you know, I think that's incredibly generative and healing. So um, I could talk about lots of things, but I should ask you, is there a title for this book? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Sure. Um, like most people who've never written a book before and, you know, that joke about, um, about writers where it's like, I want it to be out in the world and it to reach the people that need it. But, you know, I prefer no one read it. You know, <laughs> I'm that interesting mix of extroverted and shy. So the title is All In. And All In refers to the piece you talked about, which the, was the original zygote for that uh -huh. book that I published on Medium. And that piece that helped me write the rest of the book with a couple, um, you know, fairy godmothers and uh, angels in my ear being like, I feel like there's a book yeah. in there. Adrian was yes. like, I feel like there's a book in there. Um, but All In is really, um, it refers to a final scene in that, in that piece where all the candles I'd been saving, all the incense I had, right. all the, the beautiful things I had, I just yes. burned all <laughs> yes. of it on the altar. Like it's time to be yes. all in. And I think that um, all in sounds exhausting to a lot of folks, but I actually think it's much more about how um, we show up with the actual purpose, understanding how short our time can really, really mm -hmm. be. <laughs> so that is so beautiful. And I know that our listeners will think, we will all think about what it means for us in this time to be all in. Um, we have just a few more minutes and what I would love to hear, and I hadn't planned this initially, but all of you on the show today are, are parents of young children. Um, and you mentioned Gael, who's four. Uh, what's the world you're trying to 
create for him and for generations to come. Can you give us a picture? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that the kind of world that I want to create for him is one where he can actually be all in. I mean, I say that not to be corny, but in a very specific way, uh, having two mothers who are divorced, being a light-skinned child of color, um, speaking both Spanish and English. Like, I want a space where he's not passing in one part of a binary around race, around class, around spiritual orientation. I want him to be in a world where he's able to be all in. And I think that if um, those of us who are actually living at those particular margins are all in, and, and many other margins, um, I actually think that we're able to um, make this world anew. And I, I take a great, I think there will be a profound amount of shape changing mm -hmm. in the world, for the world to have to be, to, to be able to be what we mm -hmm. need it to be. Our children are going to have to have profoundly different skills, but sometimes we talk about that acquisition, but we don't talk about what they're going to have to lay down. And there's a lot that they're going to get from us, um, their parents and those who came before us, a lot of mindsets, a lot of ways of being that will no longer be effective. Um, and so I think as much about the world that I want to help in the, in the forging mm -hmm. of, but also how do we make space for them to do that forging? And it, it, it must, I think, look profoundly different mm -hmm. than, than what came before. So, you know, I hope that for our children um, across the board in terms of their relationship to the actual planet we live on, which I think will change profoundly in their lifetimes, as well as their relationship to um, old belief systems that they will be making theirs. You know, I think we'll see... Um, really large shifts in this generation. And some of it will be about giving them the space um, to do what, what they see and know is coming. Um, and I do think it will look really different. Caitlin, thank you so much for being with us today on State of Belief Radio. We, are, we have learned a lot from you. Caitlin Breedlove is the Deputy Executive Director at the Women's March and Movement Strategist in Residence at Auburn Seminary in New York City. Since 2003, Caitlin has been organizing, writing, and building movements in red states, working across race, class, culture, gender, sexuality, and faith. She's the current board member and former co-director of Southerners on New Ground, or SONG. Thanks so much. Thanks, Catherine. So great to be with you. Now, before we go, I want to acknowledge the recent changes at Interfaith Alliance as reflected here on State of Belief. With the Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch stepping into the role of president and CEO at the Alliance this week, it's been my pleasure to lead the organization on an interim basis, bridging the conclusion of the tenure of President Emeritus, Rabbi Jack Moline, and the start of Paul's. I've always been a fan and supporter of this program and longtime host, Reverend Welton Gaddy. The conversations you've just heard are ones I've wanted to have for such a long time, and it's a joy to be able to share them with you on State of Belief. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Your donations help keep us on the air. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. 
That's stateofbelief.com. Stay up to date by subscribing to the free weekly State of Belief podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And take a moment to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and be part of the conversation. Social media helps connect like-minded people in conversation and company. And I'm going to ask you to share State of Belief with just one person this week for whom you think this might be helpful. Our producer is Ray Kirstein. State of Belief Radio is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics. Until then, take good care. I'm Katherine Henderson, and that's State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.